Welcome to Conversations with Coley, where we have conversations about subjects we think about but often don't speak about. My name is Nicole Miller, and I'm the author of this book series, A Through Z, Guide to Raising a Good Human, a series I wrote to help in the communication process. Welcome back to Conversations with Coley. Today I'm speaking to author T. Rose. T. Rose has written several books outlining her struggles with addiction and how she overcame them. Welcome, Tiffany. Hi, thank you. You're welcome. I want to start us off by reading the description of your book, The Trap. I read it and was like, this is so powerful, so we have to share this. What happens when a hardworking young Southern belle climbing the corporate ladder at the forefront of the computer revolution gets trapped in the dark underworld of drugs, crime, and prostitution? This is a true story of Tiffy Rose Baker's long journey from the hot West Texas plains and Sunday church picnics to the executive boardroom and shimmering nightlife of South Florida. Following her as she boards the bus, fleeing abuse and alienation in the dusty ranch country in pursuit of shattering the glass ceiling in a male-dominated business world. Dedication and hard work propel her up, but naivety and misplaced trust lead her into a darkness from which any escape may be fatal. The Big Trap is a tense and thought-provoking examination of the secretive world of drugs and vice and the high price success can extract from the unsuspecting. The Big Trap, just one last high, is the voice of one, but the story of many. I have goosebumps. I don't know if you can <laughs> see them. That gives me goosebumps. I had to share that. It, it was definitely an intense book to write. It took over three years to get it to print. Wow. I can imagine. I can imagine. Wow. So I'm going to start us off with an icebreaker question and then we'll just dive right in if that's okay. Yes, All right. All right. So your icebreaker question is what or where is your happy place? Wow. Okay. My happiest place is the beach. I live very close to it here now in South Florida and it just brings me so much calm. I mean, being in the water always did. I was a swimmer um, in my early teens, and just being in the water always calmed me. But being on the beach, it, it's just mesmerizing, right? You hearing the waves come ashore and sounds of the seagulls and uh, soft breeze off the water. It's just beautiful. So that's my zen place. Yeah. <laughs> I agree. I lived in Florida for 10 years. I left Wisconsin, moved down to Florida to Pasco County. And that was also my my Zen place. Whenever things would the shit was hitting the fan, so to speak, <laughs> I would run to the water. I'm afraid of water. So it was interesting to me to move to where there is all the water. And it actually helped me overcome my fear. So oh, good for I, you. yeah, I agree. All right. So tell us about yourself, a little bit about your background. Okay, well, I am a devout follower of God as I understand him, and my life today is in uh, no way my life of old. Um, I have overcome what some would say was the loss of adaptive child, or, or that would be the psychology term of it. Um, and today, you know, I am a confident person that overcame a lot as a businesswoman on a mission to bring healing to a broken world of lost um, souls who truly do want a better life. 
I'm also a mother of two and a grandmother of five. Um, and their healing after my own um, is why. Why I've spent the last 20 years studying the complexities of the mind to understand my own self and then emulate that healing um, that healing was possible for my family because when my children were still almost in diapers, I walked away from everything to go and live my vice 24 seven for 10 long years on the street. And surviving that was um, a miracle, I would say, yeah. It was a miracle. And so I took all of that and as a, someone that really wanted to bring that awareness to the youth of today, right? I knew that as I was writing and changing and healing, I was seeing the same for my children. And I believed then that, okay, now let me see if I can write this out and see if it can be of any value to the youth of today, you know? I mean, because for most addicts, alcoholics, the true pain or core of their addiction is strictly to suppress the pain they suffered as children. And that's gonna lead us into my next question. Did you experience trauma as a young child? Absolutely did. Um, my father was physically abusive. My mother was verbally abusive. I also suffered uh, rape as a child. And you squish all that in into being a complete introvert. Um, it was devastating. Mm -hmm. And did you suffer your entire childhood, like from the time you could remember all the way till you turned 18 and got out of the house? I did. Yeah. At four years old, my life was already so bad that my little brother and I made a pact and we sat down with a boatload of baby aspirin in the middle of the night and literally tried to kill ourselves. Yeah. And it was, I mean, can you imagine being four years old and then and knowing your life was already so messed up that you knew that it was gonna possibly be the only way to escape is death. you could have foreseen going forward. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, um, I was nine when I contemplated suicide because my childhood was that bad. I prayed to God, please, I don't want to be here. I want to die, you know, so I can imagine. I can't imagine four. So it must have been really terrible for you. I'm tearing up. Sorry. <laughs> no, I know it was definitely that's why it took me so long to write that first book because yeah, was, that's a lot live all of that again was yeah, and when you relive it, because I also wrote a book series, um, mine's more about communicating with your children, because in my uh, abuse journey, I was hit a lot, I was I was hated on a lot, and no one ever explained why. So when I raised my kids, I decided I was going to be very communicative. And so then I wrote a series called Sex, Suicide, and Substance Abuse, and it, it kind of highlights all my struggles with that and how to explain to your children, hey, if you're feeling this way or that way, it's important for them to kind of know, right? It is, and to, and to feel that they can share, mm -hmm. right? Because I believe that an abusive child is told at least for me, don't tell anybody or right. else, right? So here you are, your life's already a living hell, and then you're being threatened. You can't tell anybody that might possibly help you. Yes, 
Yes. And I don't know about you, but back in my day in the town I lived in, they kind of turned a blind eye to stuff like that. So if you went and told the teacher, it's not like they removed you from the home immediately like they do now. You would go home, they would confront, they would do an investigation. So meanwhile, while the investigation's going on, what's happening to the child being beaten even worse? Exactly. And I think as abused children, we both probably knew. I ain't saying a word. (laughs) And and that's the problem, right? And, 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 which is why why I have done what I'm doing after years and years of researching to understand, well, all these professionals, how come the system still seems to be failing and actually the failures gaining speed instead of the help? Yeah, yeah. And, I right? think we stay silent about it. And that's the other reason that I wanted to write my book series was because we do sweep that stuff under the rug. We don't talk about sex abuse. We don't talk about substance abuse. Suicide would never happen in my family, right? So we tend to ignore it to make it go away. And what's actually happening is it's getting worse. Right. It all gets suppressed. Mm -hmm. And, 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 you know, instead of, as you've done, right, to help explain, well, here's some of the things the majority of kids don't get that and and unless they go actively looking for their own answer they're not going to get it i mean i went through 12 rehabs two mental health hospitals and when i finally was done with all of that i was like i still do not understand why right what was i missing that i could go through all of that and come out with nothing right Right. So how old were you? Well, first, let me just ask, how did you choose to cope with your trauma? For me, I was 13, started taking Xanax. So for you, what what happened to you? When I was 12-ish, I had just been raped by my cousin for the second time. And I was doing some cleaning in the house and actually knocked a bottle of vodka over. Now, my family was already big drinkers and partiers. And, you know, they always said, well, let's go have a good time, right? Big family barbecues. But it always seemed like their good time ended up in some kind of violence. Yeah. Um, so I never could quite understand that. But it was about that time I started drinking. And I had at 14 took a job at a local diner, busing tables, washing dishes. Then I had money, right? Mm. So then I had money to go and buy my own. In in the late 70s, early 80s, right? You can walk, I could walk into the liquor store and kind of like smile at, right? And dude's gonna like, sure, here's some some rum, go for it, right? (laughs) Yeah, I could get a bottle of whiskey and a pack of cigarettes and say it was for my parents. And I could have totally used all of that myself. Right, right. Yeah. You know, and I had money to add in the weed and it was just all downhill from there. Right, right. Um. So after you turned 18, did you then turn to a relationship to kind of get out of your family because I know that's what I did you know a lot of people that are in abusive homes they run to the next well and that's true and and yes first I went across the United States to Florida 
right, to get away from my family, thinking that the geographical change would work. And I think many addicts believe that same thing. Oh, I'm going to just go across the country or to another state or another city, and that geographical change will be the answer, you know, to to the problem. And it's right. not because you still haven't dealt with why you started using. Yeah. Uh, but yes, I did um, find a, uh, I met somebody that also came from a traumatic abusive childhood. And um, on the outside, he was always the happy-go-lucky guy. Everybody wanted to be his friend. But he really turned into that same abusive um, person that his dad was to him. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so it just caused a lot of my childhood traumas to repeat themselves because mm-hmm. I still hadn't dealt with them, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I had only suppressed them with the drugs and alcohol that I had. And meeting him, we now added in cocaine. and So it just made it even worse. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I feel like when you come from an abusive home, you do what I call trauma bonding. When you meet somebody and they go, oh, I had an abusive childhood and you go, me too. And then you bond over trauma. And really what you're doing is keeping yourself in that cycle. Right. You're staying in the sickness of it instead mm-hmm. of, of uh, getting away. Right. Or finding, yes, getting away. So would you say addiction snuck up on you or were you aware that you were an addict while you were using? Hmm, That's a really cool question. I definitely don't think it snuck up on me. I I definitely started out using um, very young, right? Mm -hmm. By the time, like I said, I was 14, I was, you know, already drinking and smoking weed and, um, but to internalize the fact that I was an addict probably didn't really hit me until I, I was done with it. And I okay. found recovery, you know, um, that whole denial, rationalization, justification, it, 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 it was just so deep because I didn't, I mean, who wants to admit I was four years old and my life sucked so bad that I tried to kill myself. Yeah. Um, and people, I think, too, if you go to tell them something like that, they don't want to hear it in a way. They're more worried about their growing up problems. So your problems, they don't want to hear it and they don't want to believe it. You're telling them, hey, at four years old, I wanted to kill myself. And a lot of people or kids would be like, uh, I don't think you really did. <laughs> but they don't realize that, yes, that it's possible for a child to want to die because their life is that bad. Uh, And I totally agree with you. Uh, I mean, that goes back to that denial. And and I think that's the reason that most addicts and alcoholics stay stuck in that pattern of addiction. And it could be anything, sex, food, I mean, you name it, right? Mm -hmm. And because having to admit to yourself that one, your life sucked that bad. Then two, that you compounded that terribleness with adding in the substances to try to suppress it, which only created more problems down the road instead of the escape and the and the betterment that you thought it was supposed to bring to your life, which not even close. <laughs> right, right, exactly. So 
How did addiction affect your life, your relationships, and your children's lives? Ooh, my life. <clears throat> it took everything from me. Um, my marriage, my children, my job. I mean, I had a, a stellar career. I, I, When I moved to Florida, before I really knew um, the, 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 the path of the cocaine was going to take me down, um, I had graduated the top of my class in electronics in in the early 1980s when PCs were just yeah. the thing, right? We're just coming to the market. I graduated the top of my class. I was the only female. So, of course, I'm in there with these guys that are like, why are you here? You're just a <laughs> girl. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you don't have brains. <laughs> Right. <laughs> and so I got a job at a at a computer manufacturing company that was just starting to do um, PCs for the general population. And I worked my way up from just an assembler to the supervisor of the production floor um, and then became pregnant with my first child, my daughter, and they moved me into the office. And so I started learning all the office things and worked my way into the corporate office of it um, until the cocaine was just took me out too too far. And so, uh, while you were like doing all that, you were using as well. I was. I was a functional addict for fifteen years, and yeah. um, by the time I was just completely bonkered by everything. I had my my son, my daughter and son are three and a half years apart. Um, my husband at the time had created his own sprinkler, you know, built his own sprinkler business in the oh, state wow. of Florida. I mean, like that's, that's huge, yeah. It is, especially then because you know, with population the growth was just beginning to boom here. And I mean, we had more money than we knew to do with and and uh, it was detrimental more than productive. Um, right. We lost everything because we let the, the drugs be more important than the business, my career, our children. Um, so today I try and bring that awareness of, to, I, I'm on trying to, really focus it on the teens to give them a, a clear-eyed view of what that path down that road is going to look like. Because you ask any addict that has recovered if that road does not look similar, if not exactly the same, right? Mm -hmm. How destructive it is until they come all the way back to their teens and deal with it. Yeah. Yeah, and that's the whole thing is when you're an addict, the only way to recover is to get to the root of the problem of why you're using to begin with. Absolutely. For me, I told myself, oh, I just use drugs. I don't abuse drugs, right? I just use them. <laughs> right? Yeah, that's the rationalization of an addict. <laughs> I hear you, Chloe. I hear you. <laughs> Can you share with us a rock bottom moment where you decided to say enough is enough? I had just had probably one of the worst seizures ever. 
and um, I had died three different times, but in the end, my body had reached such a saturation point, my, my physical body, my brain, that just about any time I used, I would have a seizure almost instantly. I could actually feel them coming on. Right. And this last one was was so bad that that I bit my tongue. I've got pieces of my tongue that are gone. Um, only by God's grace am I here and that the police found me laying in the middle of this field and carted me off to jail on an outstanding warrant that I had. Oh, wow. Did, and I was looking at a year in jail behind that. Yeah. Did I finally realize that, you know, I, I couldn't continue to go on this way. And obviously my best efforts at killing myself weren't working. Right. Yeah. So it was like, okay, let's try something. God said, no, you get to stay here. (laughs) Yeah. In my suicide journey, I realized I, that's, it's not for me. (laughs) That was, that was probably the rock bottom, but you know, the 10 years living on the street and doing whatever it took to stay high 24 seven was was a, a bottom that I would try to talk anybody out of. Yeah. Can I ask, can I kind of dive into that a little bit? So you go from stupid amounts of money, having a home, having a family, to literally living on the street. Tell me a little bit about how you rationalize that, maybe live in that, and accept it for those 10 years. My husband had just received his second DUI, was on probation for five years, couldn't drink and couldn't drug, and I wasn't ready to stop using. Mm. So in the middle of the night, one night, I got up, left my kids sleeping, took the car, went to the area where I would eventually live for the next 10 years, and found myself on the street trying to figure out how the ladies of the night did their job in order to support the the um you know the drugs that i was after and found myself in with the the kingpin of the area so to speak and became one of the top girls living you know in that reality um being here right near Palm Beach, and we had some people with a lot of money that were clientele. So it, it was it was a degrading existence. Mm-hmm. But at the time, um, it gave me everything that I thought I needed in order right. to stay high. And, right. And. Um, being at the level I was within that organization, some of the the beatings and whatnot that most of the other girls in the stable got, I didn't. Mm. Another blessing, I guess, of the Lord in in the um, you know environment that I was in. But um, it, it was an ugly existence, you know. Again, another part of reason why. I've created the series I had to bring that awareness. Yeah. Give these people a clear eyed view, these children, a clear eyed view of the ugliness of that, of the 
ugliness of all the things you're going to it's going to take from your life including in in very quite possibly your life literally yeah i was going to say i'm sure that in what you were involved in you saw women disappear never come back i have yep Yep. Wow. And I think it's very important to share this because you never know. It only takes one time. When we come from addiction, we don't realize we're born with that personality. We're born with those traits that we can easily fall into. We're not just we're not just silencing our pain, but we also carry those traits that our family who we grew up despising and their behavior, we end up repeating. Right, and it's only when you actually trigger them do mm-hmm. they become active. I mean, mm-hmm. if you have had never actually triggered that, that that whole, wow, this kind of feels good. I think I need some more. That feels good. I need some more. It feels good. I need some more. Breaking that cycle and bringing that awareness is so important, in my opinion. I mean, mm-hmm. I was blessed to, my kids were able to, to see the ugliness of what I went through as children, right? I wasn't there for them. Um, when I did come around, you know, it would bring their hopes up and then it would be crushed again. And when I found recovery, their dad picked up right where he left off and died at 51. Oh, wow. Four days after his 51st birthday. Wow. Wow. And, you know, so yes, they have some emotional scars. But by the grace of the Lord, they never picked up the uh, the addiction personalities um, the way their father and I had lived. Right. Um, well, your children weren't abused, correct? Like neglect no. is one thing because your parents are using, but not abused in the ways like you and your husband, correct? No, they weren't. Um, Yeah. So that probably helped. It did. It absolutely did. Um, And I think, you know, one of the, one of the, back to your other question, as far as, you know, some of the rock bottom moments, I I remember in your, you stating, you know, people just disappear. I was, with with this person one day with a gun to my head and he took me out in the middle of nowhere and I'm like you can just leave me here right just don't kill me don't hit me in the face just just leave me here mm-hmm. and luckily I was able to talk my way you know through that in the middle of the night out in the middle of nowhere and found my way back but so many people do disappear, girls and boys, right? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. So it's a, it's a, it's a rough um, existence, you know, and one that I hope I can circumvent for 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 others today. Yeah. 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 I mean, we're all here for a reason, right? And so, and we go through these things for a reason. That's how I've helped, you know, to heal is to say, maybe I went through this to teach how to not get caught up or how to get through it healthily. Amen. Yeah. So how did you first seek help? I didn't really have a choice in it. I was um, sentenced from going from jail, um, 
sentenced to then go to treatment after the fact. But the very last time that I actually went to jail on that one-year sentence, I chose to be put back in one of the jailhouse recovery programs that I had been in before on my uh, waiting period to actually go to an outside rehab from the jail. And <clears throat> this time I decided that I was ready to listen, mm. to take in the advice that was, you know, being given to me and not let my past define who I was and to look to the future and embrace something new and better. Mm -hmm. And um, and because I did that and I graduated that three-month program within the jail system because I was stuck there for a year this time wasn't going anywhere and um, when I had completed it I had petitioned the judge that had sentenced me for an early release and because I had done so well in this program he granted me an early six months early release so oh, wow wow congratulations I mean, thank you and I wasn't going to take that for granted and and that's when I think I, I really set out to learn why. Mm -hmm. Why did all those other things fail me? Mm -hmm. What was I not listening for? Maybe what weren't they giving, right? That I was willing to reach the hand that was reaching to me, mm -hmm. which is part of how I created the, or, or why I created what I've done in my writing, so. Yeah, wow, that's amazing. Thanks. Yeah. So once you got out, you stayed on the path of sobriety, never to look back. That's it. 20 years this year. Next wow. Month. That's amazing. That's Thank amazing. You. Yes. Um, during that time of in your early sobriety, did people from your past try to come back in to try to drag you in? No. That's good. No, because, I mean, they were too deep into where they were. And I had made sure I took myself in, in, into a, an environment where they couldn't reach me. And, I mean, we're still talking about the late 90s. You know, the cell phones were just starting to be a thing. Right. And, you know, so it was mostly pagers. And, you know, so I changed... Um, I changed my, my, you know, nobody could reach me. Now, I had in previous times when I had gotten recovery, thought that I was smart enough to go down and visit. Ah, and <laughs> yeah. Tripped, my, tripped myself up a couple of times that way and allowed um, that, oh, just this one time, you can do it, and you go back to work tomorrow. Yeah, that didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think we all do that. Oh, I can go ahead and just, this one time, one time. <laughs> so, well, I guess we kind of skipped that. I was going to say, talk about your experience with that one last high, because your book, that's the title of the book. Um, do you want to talk about that? You know, when I, that kind of just goes back to what I was just saying, right? That tricking yourself into believing you can get high one more time, yeah. you can have one more drink. And um, there was multiples of that because, you know, along that path, I had, as I said, had gone to rehab, you know, almost probably once every single year 
I, at least, you know, the judge would sentence me to go to rehab and I would get clean for a few months and, and talk myself into, oh, I can just go down there and just have one. Yeah. It never worked. <laughs> back on the street I went. And uh, so it, it was a long, painful journey trying to learn that lesson that, you know, just once more is not going to work especially in today's times with the fentanyl everywhere. Yeah. I mean, it's a death sentence. Yeah. And now you can't even use like certain THC products because they're laced with fentanyl and it's an instant death sentence. And most of your drug addicts and most of your alcoholics, it's the one more time that gets them in the end. Yes, it does. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And today's, today's opioid crisis is crazy. When I moved to Florida, it was in 2007 or eight. And I was from Wisconsin. I wasn't, I, there was a little bit of an opioid epidemic there, but not much. I kept coming across people falling asleep at the stoplights, falling asleep, taking their order at a restaurant. I'm like, these people are so tired. What is the deal? What are they doing? And then I figured it out. Like, oh, oh the oxys, yeah. Oxys, roxies, all that weird. I was like, who looks at these people and goes, I want some, but I guess <laughs> it's a well, pain thing. <laughs> you know, I truly believe that they, especially the professionals that were using those at the time, you know, oh, I got a back injury mm-hmm. or hurt my ankle and got on those but then they kind of thought it was socially acceptable right because they weren't sticking needles in their arm or smoking off crack pipes so Mm -hmm. they were like they were well i'm you know i'm all good because you know it's just it's just a pill (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah it's like suburban moms using the molly (laughs) (laughs) you know yeah it's like an acceptable thing and i think those those drugs are designed to trick your brain into thinking you need them. And so it keeps you in addiction. So what made you decide to help others outside your healing journey? What was it? Was that something that you always thought you were going to do as you were getting yourself together or did something kind of happen to kind of say, I'm going to start helping other people? Well, after I spent a good 10 years studying all the complexities of not only the the physical physiology of addiction and what it does to the body i also spent a lot of time studying the very texts that the psychiatrists and these people that are leading all these rehab centers are supposed to study so 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 excuse me social workers and the lot and i kept coming back to the same thing with all the different theories that they had um that they study and worked off of which you know are from the 1960s and 1970s they haven't come up with anything new since then right and the one thing that i kept coming back to was they wanted to use all these different types of therapy, whether it was um, uh, cognitive um, behavioral therapy or all of them. The one thing that they they all focused on is 
how do you get the patient to talk to you? I'm like, well, duh. I sure didn't want to talk. And all the other people sitting around me didn't want to talk. Mm-mm, mm-mm. So there's the big problem. How do you get them to talk? I'm like, well, that's very interesting. So when I realized that my healing was also changing the, the dynamic of my children and talking to them, as you were saying, if, when what you did with your work. And I'm like, Maybe there's something to this. Maybe, maybe there's some disconnect that the between the patient and the counseling people that are trying to help. What's this big abyss about? Why is there there's such a hole there that nobody can seem to cross, and is causing this problem to get even worse? I mean, you add in the oxys where they believed it was so socially acceptable to be addicted to them because it's only a pill kind of same with alcohol right i mean well it's it's legal i can go to the grocery store and buy some mm-hmm. so i can't be an addict i mean i'm not an alcoholic i mean i can still go to work oh i just have one beer a day after i get off work every day yeah <laughs> i'm not an alcoholic no <laughs> right right so i realized that maybe i could help change that maybe I could figure out how to create that that bridge and so I talked to my kids you know let them know what I was thinking about doing and now I did write my books under a pseudo name and um, Tiffy's not my you know right but I talked to them and I told them that I was going to do it that way to protect them myself you know yeah and protect myself from out there because you know there's still some haters out there that would not want what's written especially in the big trap to right uh, they don't want that out right no because i you know uh, laid out a lot of intricate things of that whole street life in that book right um which i find very important by the way and i commend you for doing that that's brave Thank you. It mm-hmm. was it was um, it was definitely a journey, but I believe that in bringing that insight to the youth of today can can be very helpful. I mean, I've seen it in my own children, right? Mm-hmm. By telling them this, the facts of what that world was, other than what they thought they assumed or knew from me being gone and occasionally dad would drive them through town looking for me and stuff i i just i believe that um i could bridge that gap so i also created a facebook group of um and started asking a lot of questions well what was it that you didn't get when you were in treatment what would have helped you um talk back to you know talk with the counselor Mm -hmm. right and yeah. that's the dynamic I'm working on now. I'm awesome. almost finished with it. So. Yeah, awesome. I feel like for me, um, I went to therapy for domestic violence issues. Um, I didn't go for any addiction issues because I kind of was like, that's not a good look and was able to do it on my own. I didn't have to look. I did go attend some AA meetings and I'm like you. I didn't want to share. I felt very like, why do I want to get up and talk? I don't want everybody staring at me, you know. 
what are they going to do to help me kind of thing. And I think it's relatability. If you can relate to somebody who's been through it, when I would go to these domestic violence therapy sessions, especially group sessions, a lot of times they were run by women who had never experienced it. So they start regurgitating, well, that's what you're used to, so that's what you look for. That's not true. I did not start dating John Doe because I wanted him to whip my ass. <laughs> right. I wanted a white picket fence, quite frankly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And domestic violence, whether you're the, the wife or the child, also is a big trigger for addiction. Right. You know, as another oh. reason to suppress it, right? Yeah. And so much trauma and pain, you know. And in in today, it's almost like you say you know it just oh well that's what you looked for so that's what you're gonna get yeah i didn't look to be have my butt beat daily no yeah yeah i didn't want to be choked in front of my children i didn't want dcf involved i didn't want any of this i did not ask for this life but i had to finally find a few women who taught classes that said i've been there this is why you keep doing this. This is why this is the mistakes. Here's a red flag list. I mean, if somebody would have handed me that in high school, that would have been huge because I used to say, if only when I meet these men, there was a list. <laughs> and then I went to Massachusetts domestic violence shelter and they said, here's a list. Holy crap. <laughs> There's not enough information out there to teach our young ladies and men the red flags. Exactly. What and addiction it, looks like. <laughs> and as you were just saying, right, the the counselors that you're sitting in front of never experienced that. So how can they really be able to understand what you feel, which mm -hmm. is what the other part of my program that I'm working on, where I'm almost complete, is training people that have had those issues to be peer specialists that can really sit within the group and relate to them yeah and reach them and get them to feel comfortable enough to talk about their thing because you know sadly these rehab centers especially these 30-day churn and burn programs yeah i mean basically all they're doing is letting them sleep for 30 days and then they expect them to go out there and get a job yeah well, you did not teach them anything while they were there and you expect them to go get a job now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's the thing. Yeah. And also be able to not use. Right. And how to tell those people. Because in some aspects of addiction, I'm sure there are people that their um, codependent user friends want to keep them in that addiction. Misery loves company, right? Absolutely. I mean, they go home to the same broken, dysfunctional environment. I mean, 90% can't get away from that. Yeah. Yeah. Because so I'm like you. I've lived in state to state to state doing the same thing. Leaving because, oh, my problems will stay there. They won't follow me here. <laughs> it's, right. That's what it needs to be at the top of the checklist. This geographical changes <laughs> do not work. <laughs> yes. I do have to say, I found my help in the state of Florida. That's good. Yeah. The state of Florida saved my life, honestly. So I have, I have to say, um, I commend them for that hugely. I've made some good friends that 
um, supported me and saw something better when I was at my lowest. So that was a good thing. What, so what ways do you currently offer help to others struggling with addiction? Well, I do have a support group online at Facebook, on Facebook, uh, called Quest for Recovery Support Group. And um, I've been doing that for four, four years now. Mm. That particular group's only been a little over three years, but um, mentoring people as either in a group setting or personally, they can always reach out to me. Um, And I am working on bringing this new program to, I'm on a first started into the juvenile detention center and the prison system where they don't get much help, right? Yeah. And um, and to those also in the shelters that have access to traditional rehab, right? I mean, unless you are lucky enough to trip through a jail and be sentenced to rehab. And in most cases, those people, like I wasn't ready, right? Or, or feel put off by it. Yep. Right. Yep. Um, already going into it, not wanting to be there. So they're not going to get mm-hmm. anything out of it anyways. Right. So trying to create an environment where the, um, the, the desire for the knowledge is wanted as opposed to just feeling like it's being put upon you. So, right. I like that because that's so true. I felt that same way when I would, I was in probably about six domestic violence shelters. Some were very helpful in some ways, but they, they almost do like a turn and burn too. It's three months and you have to, you go from homelessness to you better have a place to live. You better have a job. And half the time when you run, you run with nothing. Right. So, yeah, to be able to say, hey, if you want this help, here I am. Right. And um, so I've I've been very successful. I've helped a lot of people and um, I'm looking forward to helping a lot more. I'm um, this close to getting a uh, doing my application for NIH uh, research pilot program for the work that I'm doing. So. I'm super excited. Yeah. And do you think you'll ever offer something virtually in that same aspect? Eventually. Yeah. Awesome. It will be. It will be. Awesome. I think it's a lot of moving parts to getting it all together, though. Let me tell you what. <laughs> oh, I know. I'm sure. Yeah. And, and a little bit of cheddar. <laughs> a lot of that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so when life throws hard things at you, as it does for us all, what ways do you handle it from a sober standpoint? Well, today, I try to analyze the whole thing right i can either overreact to it and let it derail me for days not that i would go back to using but just emotionally or mentally right just shut down or realize you're gonna have to face it eventually you can either shut it down and 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 stick it in the corner but you're still gonna have to go over to the corner and deal with it so (laughs) i just try and and take each um adverse thing that comes at me and they do you know they do like you said and and just sort through it and and make it work you know Mm -hmm. 
Because mm-hmm. a lot of times I think people go backwards from sobriety, even sometimes a year in. They go back because problems start arising, you know? And so then that's their escape. Oh, well, I'll just, you know, I'll just drink this or I'll just use this this one time to get through this tough spot. Or when you change your mindset from a negative thinking process to a positive thinking process, people are under this misconception that if you're a positive thinker, nothing bad happens to you. Right. Yeah. And that's not true. No, it's not. (laughs) But but the biggest problem with that is most of those people never dealt with those things from their that really sent them into addiction anyways. I mean, you know, the old saying being a dry drunk. Mm. Just because you're not drinking, just because you're not drugging, if you haven't dealt with those problems way back there. I mean, I was 40. I had to go all the way back to my teens to process through all that pain and trauma to be able to move forward again. Mm -hmm. And until you do that, you're just kind of sitting there with it on your shoulder trying to ignore it. Mm -hmm. You don't have your your suppressing agents or the alcohol or the drugs. You know, so after a while, it does get louder and louder and louder. And then you have some adverse thing coming. You got it got in a car accident now how the hell am I going to afford a car because I was barely you know putting food on the table right 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 and so instead of putting food on the table now you're going to go and use the only money you had to put food on the table I mean it's like (laughs) yeah yes so (laughs) I always say this okay so my younger two kids dad is a struggling addict still um he goes in and out of prison He doesn't pay his child support for any of his five kids. And I once got a letter or I got a phone call from a child support lady. And she said, he's in jail because he has been caught with with possessing, possessing, possession. And he's a drug addict right now. And so he can't afford to pay you. And I said, how the heck can he afford to have a drug addiction? It's expensive. (laughs) It is expensive. Very expensive. And that's the whole problem is a lot of people don't sit and do the money on what you're spending to cope. It's a lot. You could have so much more if you would just put the money on paper, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and and that's true, right? Um, in a presentation I just recently did, I said the same exact thing. Is, oh, oh, you know, I got the question, well, I don't have time for outside support group meetings after I leave rehab. I'm like, well, if you had taken, because I don't have the money to, to, to go, right? To, right. To spend the time. But you had the money, as you just said, to chase your drugs, chase your alcohol, to chase the what it took to get the money to get high. Mm-hmm. So you had time for all of that, but you don't have time a couple times a week for an hour to get some outside therapy to help you. Yeah. <laughs> and you're the right. Because I'm spending like almost a thousand dollars a day getting high. That's and crazy. That's a lot of freaking money. Yeah. Don't you wish you could just have it all back in one lump sum? <laughs> yeah. Well, there's nothing about that life that I want back. But yeah. no, I'm saying the money, the I money know. so yeah. that you could now use it for something healthy. <laughs> right. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, I agree. Because I do. I did that with my mom's addiction. You know, we were poor, but my mom had a lot of sources of income. Um, When she divorced my stepdad, I got 
a child support check of X amount of dollars. She worked three jobs, but we never had food in our house. I wasn't able to have clothes. I had to buy my own stuff by babysitting. She never had money because they had bar tabs all over town. So when I sat down and said, this was how much you brought in. We were a middle-class family, but you drug us down to low class because of your and your husband or your boyfriend's addictions. And that's the whole thing. I don't think that people kind of put it into that perspective of like, if I look at, if I don't use, how much do I save besides my health? (laughs) And, and, but the selfishness of addiction doesn't allow that. Yeah. I was a smoker for 25 years. So I mean, there was that when I was, when people were like, oh, if you quit smoking, you're going to save so much money. I was like, yeah, right. Cause I, you know, (laughs) I was, it's five bucks a pack or two bucks a pack or whatever depends on what you smoke. And I realized that, yes, I gained a lot of money, but I also gained time. Right. I was wasting 10 minutes a cigarette, however many cigarettes. Now I have all my minutes back. (laughs) Because I'm not stopping to smoke a cigarette. Right, exactly. <laughs> I mean, that was one bad habit I never had to quit. I never, I think because when I was young, my parents smoked, chain smoked, and it like, I just, it was just, just one smell I cannot stomach, so. Yeah, you're very lucky. I grew up in a place where it, peer pressure in the 90s, wouldn't you say? it's a, It was heavy back then. And I was hugely peer pressured into smoking. And that's how I ended up addicted to smoking. Yeah, it was one thing that I never uh, could stomach. But, um, I mean, peer pressure is, is, is one of the core problems for even the youth today, right? Well... It's only a cigarette, mm-hmm. you know, it's only a beer, it, it, it's only a joint. And uh, before they know it, you know, 10 years have gone by and they're like, now they've wasted so much money, so much mm-hmm. time, mm-hmm. Uh, so much energy. So, yeah. How big of a part of overcoming addiction comes from self-awareness? Huge. Yeah. All of it, right? Huge. Yes. Yes. <laughs> And that's the whole point of what uh, the Quest series is about, is awareness. Nice. Yeah, so thank you. Yeah, because I've noticed people who deny that they're an addict, it's because they're really not, they don't want to look inward. They stay blind to their own, even their own behaviors, and they don't want to admit it's them. Mm -hmm. They don't want to admit it to themselves. Because once you admit it to yourself, then you have to actually do something about it. That's just like you go to the doctor. He says, you've got cancer. You can either take the chemo or not. Right. But if you never went to the doctor, you didn't know. You just know you feel like crap. And yeah. Right. So then you've either got the, you've got the prescription to get better. Right. So awareness to all the things you allowed into your life is, is, is traumatizing in its own, you know, for a lot of people. Right. Cause then, as I said, then they actually have to, realize they got to do something about it then they have to be accountable to themselves if they were still blissfully ignorant they didn't have to be accountable to themselves exactly exactly because it used to baffle me my mom is an alcoholic 
Okay. She can go periods of time not drinking, but she is an alcoholic. And I would say the word alcoholic and she would get automatically defensive. I wouldn't even have to be talking about her. And I was like, why is it so hard to say the word alcoholic? I never had a problem with that when I knew I was struggling. Do you know what I mean? And so I never could understand that. So that is a huge good point. <laughs> right. Because once once you are you know labeled and i hate to use that term but once you you know somebody stuck a label on you whether it's an uh, an alcoholic a drug addict a a prostitute uh, a a criminal then you are like well i can either continue to wear this label or peel it off and find a different one you know Mm -hmm. a responsible tax-paying citizen a homeowner a mom a dad Yep. Yep. And you can tear those labels off, right? And you can change it. You're, it, you're, it's up to you, really. It is. Yes, ma'am. Starting over is tough and addiction can drag you to very low points and may cause you to do things that you may not normally do. What do you say to someone who thinks, oh, well, the damage is done. There's, there's no turning the situation around. I just tell them, look at me. Right, 25 year addict. 15 years of that was completely functional, living, having a, a home, a business, a career, you know, to walking away from it all to to 10 more years on the streets to now here 20 years in recovery, a business owner, a homeowner, um, a grandma of five. Yeah, you really can change your life, but it is awareness and mindset yeah and uh, and there's some pain and there's pain involved in it you got to feel it oh you do have to feel and that's the biggest problem they don't want to feel it Mm -hmm. right i mean Mm -hmm. because that goes back to the uh accepting right um and the awareness um or or as the example of having going to the doctor and he says okay you're sick here's the treatment you can take or not you know, it is choice. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, it drives me crazy when these people, oh, it's a disease. No, it's a choice. It's a disease. It's both. It's both. Yeah, it is both. We have the gene that 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 can carry us, but that trauma triggers it, and we have to run to that vice before we can. So it is both. It is. Until mm-hmm. you go back and you deal with the pain, the vice is going to, and the vice is only a symptom. Yeah. The pain in, in the trauma is the true problem. Yeah. Right. When people look at the vice as the problem, the vice isn't the problem. And I think that's why we have a lot of failure in the systems that are in place now because they say it's a disease. You're sick. You need to take care of your alcoholism. They don't go, you need to go back and 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 do some soul searching and figure out where, why, what are you hiding from what are you avoiding exactly 100 percent. exactly yep so tell everybody where they can find your books well the big trap just one last hi uh, freed a recovery plan uh quest the uh, addiction recovery intervention by t rose are available on amazon and uh, barnes and noble and just probably about every bookstore out there 
uh, wow. So yes, uh, um, that's awesome. You can also check out my website at Tiffy Rose, the number one, the word recovery dot com. And uh, on Facebook at T Rose Recovery, abbreviated RCVRY. And um, my my homepage has a link to all the rest of the stuff that I do. Which I will go on there and I will put that all in the show notes so that everybody can see that and, and know where to look for that. That's okay. awesome. Yeah, my um, Instagram, which I don't really like pound on that one too much. Between I don't think a lot of us like our age do. <laughs> 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 and I do have a nonprofit that um, it works in the back, you know, trying to help people get the materials um, to help them with with my program at Quest for Recovery Network Inc. dot org. If you're going or yeah, so all those links are there on my my main profile. <laughs> okay, I will definitely be sure to put into include all those. Okay. Um, if you could offer any sage advice to someone in recovery, what would it be? Don't give up on yourself. You have it within you to recover. And as we were speaking of admitting to yourself that the alcohol and the drugs are a symptom of the true problem that forced you there and for whatever reason, um, you can heal from that. Mm-hmm. And Yes, it's going to be scary. It's going to be painful to deal with that pain that you've been suppressing for all these years, but you really can do it. And you can have a magnificent, magnificent uh, future ahead. Yeah. And like, I don't know about you, but when you were writing your book, you did you relive and re-experience some of those childhood traumas? I did. And have to grieve through them? Again, yes. Yep. I did too, but didn't you feel lighter after? I did, mm-hmm. I did, and and uh, I'm excited about um, helping others be able to reach in and feel that place too, right? Yeah. Um, and and being able to move past it because that's the ultimate goal is being able to move past it. Yeah. So what do you say to an addict who may have mistreated friends and family during their addiction? Well, I surely did. And you can either continue to beat yourself up over it for eons, or you can offer them, you know, some kind of an apology. You know, you have to forgive yourself. If you can Mm -hmm. forgive yourself, whether they ever forgive you or not, it's kind of irrelevant, honestly, sadly, but it is. Um, forgiving yourself and being able to move forward is is what's important. Mm-hmm. And and really, true, the road to recovery really begins with you. Right. So if you don't ever gain those family members or friends back, at least you can make peace and move on, and you'll get you'll get more friends and family along the way. You will. And, you know, if they were part of the negative negativity that ran you into addiction in the first place, maybe they shouldn't be there anymore anyways. Amen to that. Yep. (laughs) Do you have anything else that you would like to share with everyone? 
No, I don't think so. I think we did a great job covering it other than, you know, your self-healing is yours to find and you can do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree 100%. So I'm just going to do a little plug. If you or anyone you know is struggling with addiction, there are places to turn to. Please call 1-888-804-0792. It's free and confidential. You are not alone. Or reach out to someone like Tiffany, right? Yes, ma'am. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for being here. I enjoyed our conversation thoroughly. Thank you for having me on your show. Yes. If you liked this and other episodes, please click subscribe, like, and share so others can enjoy them too. Thank you so much for listening.